Well, hey everybody, I know I say it each week, but whether you're here in the room or joining us online from wherever you are, it's great to be with you. And as many of you know, we're in the middle of a series called Seven, in which we're exploring seven letters that were addressed to seven ancient churches located in seven cities near the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And these letters were recorded for us in the last book of your Bible. It's a mysterious document called Revelation. Uh, and we know that Revelation is an example of an ancient type of literature called Apocalypse that was very popular with first century Jewish writers. And authors of apocalyptic literature are known to leverage extended metaphorical imagery that would have made a ton of sense to their original audience, but that can be a real challenge to us who are trying to read it 2,000 years removed from that original context. So in this series, uh, my goal is to show, to show you what they saw when they received the document that we call Revelation, and then talk a little bit about what I think it means for you and me today. All right, so that said, today we get to explore the fifth of the seven letters, uh, the one originally intended for Christians living in an ancient city called Sardis. Um, and to get us going, once again this week, I want to show you a 30-second video of some drone footage uh, that gives you a sense of what Sardis looks like should you visit the site today. So let's check this out. So as you just saw, like the ruins of Sardis confirmed that in its day, it was an absolutely incredible city. It was located at the end of a major trade route that the Romans called the Royal Road that stretched all the way from Susa, which was the ancient capital of the Persian Empire, all the way to the city of Sardis. Sardis was like the end of the line. And the Persians had constructed this road like 500 years before the time of Jesus in order to unite their empire and to facilitate trade. All that to say, like in the generations leading up to the first century, Sardis was a really significant city. So now before we go any farther, uh, what I want to do is show you four of my favorite sites that have been excavated at Sardis. I limited myself to four. It was a lot of work. I'm just telling you. So I love you. And the history buffs will love it. And those that don't, just bear with me for like three or four minutes. We'll move on. But my wife and I uh, actually had the opportunity to explore the ruins this past August with a group of pastors, as you can see from this picture. Oh, we were really hot at the time. I think it was 109 degrees. But anyway, uh, we are standing in this photo in front of the reconstructed multi-story bath complex that stood at the far end of a massive Roman gymnasium that was itself more than five acres in size. It was absolutely massive. And uh, gymna gymnasiums in the ancient world were a little different than the gyms you may remember from middle school. And some of you are like, oh no, I've had therapy to get over that, right? Yeah. Uh, but the Roman Empire used gymnasiums both for physical training and for academic training. Seriously. Like classrooms were, where lectures were presented on things like astronomy and Greek philosophy were constructed all around a large open-air courtyard where men would train for athletic competitions. And in the Roman world, as in the Greek world, 
when men trained for athletic competitions, they did so entirely in the nude. <laughs> Which is all shades of awkward if you stop and think about it, so let's not, let's keep moving. Okay, <clears throat> now, directly adjacent to the gymnasium stands the remains of a massive synagogue. It held something like 3,000 people, and amazingly enough, it's the largest synagogue ever found in the ancient world, even bigger than anything they've ever found in Israel. Uh, is what this tells us is that first century Sardis must have been home to a large Jewish population who, based on the location of the synagogue, literally it abuts the gymnasium, which is right at the center of town, these Jewish people had significant influence in the city. Uh, it also tells us that the church of Sardis would have undoubtedly had both Jewish and non-Jewish people in it. Okay, so now this, that's the second part I want to show you. The third picture is the ruins of a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. And she was a fertility goddess, and this, or this uh, temple ruin stands about a mile and a half or so from the gymnasium. And as far as archaeologists can tell, it was never fully completed, despite more than a few attempts to do so. However, they say if it had been completed, it would have been one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was absolutely massive. And so even without being completed, it would have been a significant site for worship for people seeking fertility in all its forms. Uh, people who wanted a successful grape harvest. There's grape vineyards all around the region of Sardis. Uh, men whose wives were expecting children and who wanted them to be able to deliver those children successfully would go to the temple to Artemis. Men who desired for their wives to be expecting children and they were having trouble uh, becoming pregnant would travel to the temple of Artemis. And, and even political leaders looking for like divine blessing on their military campaigns would travel to the temple to Artemis and offer a sacrifice in, in hopes of like persuading her to bless them. All that to say, like in ancient times, the temple would have played a very significant role in both the economic and religious experiences of people in Sardis. So that's site three. Uh, the final site I need to show you is the Acropolis. Uh, it's the upper city, Acropolis, like acrobats, uh, pi and city is polis in Greek. Acropolis, um, and you saw some drone footage of this in the video, but uh, the Acropolis was constructed on the top of a 1,500-foot-high mountain, and it provided a place for the people of Sardis to seek refuge in times of war. Uh, practically speaking, this meant that in order for Sardis to be attacked, uh, invading armies not only had to get to the city, but also had to climb a steep hill, and then once they did that, they were just reaching the very defensible walls of the upper city. And so the fortified Acropolis at Sardis would have given the town's inhabitants a profound sense of security. And hold on to that, it becomes important later. Okay, so the other bit of context I need to share before we look at what Jesus said to the church at Sardis is that by the end of the first century, uh, the time around which the letter of Revelation was written, Sardis had been eclipsed in significance by other cities in its region. Cities very nearby like Ephesus, and Smyrna that we've studied already in earlier weeks of the series, but Ephesus and Smyrna had harbors. They were harbors on the Aegean, and so they had an advantage when it came to trade. In other words, during the days when Revelation was written, the people of Sardis were sort of living off their reputation, right? Their city had a history of being the central hub in the region, but in reality, that season had ended. Now, the city had seen better days, and apparently so had the church. And that's why Jesus begins his message to them with these words. He says, 
I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. In other words, Jesus says, um, I see you. And I know that a chasm exists between your reputation and your reality. Like you're no longer who you were and you're no longer who people think that you are. But, but see, I can tell, I see the truth. And that may seem a bit harsh to you, but I'm telling you, I've served as a pastor now for over 20 years. And in that time, I've had lots of conversations with friends, most of them at Starbucks, full disclosure, right? Uh, but friends who've confessed to me that they've reached a point in their faith when, it, when it, it just seems like the faith that they have had in the past isn't as potent as, or the faith they have in the present isn't as potent as the faith they've had in the past. It's almost like something of their faith has died. And they would say, like, until I verbalized this to you, like, no, nobody knew. So though they didn't use the words, they were saying something like the reputation of my faith, like what my family thinks of my faith, what my parents think of my faith, what my friends think of my faith. It, my reputation of my faith is stronger than, than the present reality of my faith. And as I was reflecting this week on those conversations, it seems to me like there's this sort of spiritual erosion can happen for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it seems like someone's faith erodes because of disappointment. I think of like friends who reach middle age and realize that their dreams, like, you know, they're leaving high school, leaving college, like, this is what I want. This is where I want my life to go. This is what I want to be known by. These are the sort of successes that I want to have. They realize that many of those dreams are going to go unfulfilled. And after a period of like relative stability, they experience turbulence in their marriage or in their careers or in their finances or in all of the above. And they wake up one morning and realize like, man, it just wasn't supposed to be like this. I mean, they're, they're disappointed with their life. And upon honest reflection, they say, you know, I, I guess I'm also disappointed with God. I mean, he wasn't supposed to let this happen. It, it was supposed to be better than this. And something within them slowly starts to die. And they reach a moment when they say, you know, the faith that I have isn't as strong as the faith that I once had. A chasm exists between my reputation and my reality. And I think of other friends that their faith would, seems to die due to something just I'll call busyness, especially when someone starts to leverage busyness in order to mask the pain of their past. And they think to themselves, okay, if I can just keep going, and I think this is a subconscious thing, but if I can just keep going, if I can just keep moving, if I can just keep waking, uh, filling every waking moment uh, of my life so that I don't have time to reflect or to rest or to cry, if I can fill every second with endlessly scrolling through you know, sites online, social media posts, retail sites that present me with things that I don't really need but that can distract me from reflect, reflecting on my pain, then, then I won't have to think or, or feel but I'm telling you, if someone does that long enough, something in their faith begins to die. And they may reach a point where they realize, like, something in my heart that used to be alive to God just isn't alive to God anymore. I've even seen friends um, who become super comfortable telling God later, and that ends up profoundly affecting their faith in a negative way. It's like they sense that God is prompting them to do something, to make a change in their life. Maybe they, they have this sense uh, that they really need to forgive the person who hurt them the most. 
Like they came to a church service and, and some brilliant communicator, just kidding, right? But like laid out this idea like, you know, Jesus forgave you, you need to forgive them. And they're in the car and they're heading to Panera for lunch and it's like, I need to forgive him. As painful as it is, I know that it's toxic for me not to forgive him. And it's like this, this internal sense, like this is the time. But I'm telling you, in those moments, it's so easy to think, yeah, I know I should and I maybe will get to it later, but right now, no way. It's too fresh and they don't deserve it. So they sort of fold their arms and they look to the sky and they say, God, I hear you. Maybe I'll do it later, but not now. No way. Or, or maybe uh, it was a prompting to like pursue systematic generosity, like to regularly give some money, some resources to organizations working for positive change in the community they live and in the world. And they know that Jesus like instructed his followers to pursue an other's first lifestyle. And if, like, if they're honest, their life is pretty much self-focused. And, but see, in moments in Revelation like that, you get the prompting. It's just so easy. It's just so easy to kind of fold arms, look to the sky and say, you know, I get it. I, I get it's important. And I've just got some other priorities right now. I mean, I'll get to it later. It's not no, it's, it's later. But here's the thing. In my experience, later later's a really, really complicated part of a faith journey because the longer someone tends to tell God later, the less it seems they're able to receive additional promptings. Over time, it's like something in their faith that used to be alive to God isn't as alive to God anymore. That's the sort of stuff I think Jesus is pointing to when he says to the church at Sardis, like, I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. In other words, like a chasm exists between your reputation and your reality, and you're no longer who you were, and you're no longer who people think that you are, which, which at least for me brings me to a really important question. Like, what do you do when that's you? What do you do when you wake up one morning and recognize that the faith that you have isn't really a faith worth having? Where, where do you start? How do you get back on track? And, and thankfully, like in the message to the church at Sardis, Jesus tells them to do four things. And in my experience, these four things are like as effective as they've ever been if you want to recover something in your faith that you feel like was lost. So here's the first one. Two words. Jesus says, wake up. In other words, and I don't think this is like a, a scolding wake up. It's, it's like a, hey, hey, you got to wake up. It's like, you know, awaken to the reality that you're not where you're supposed to be and you're not really where you want to be. Be honest about your present reality. Wake up. And, and amazingly, for the history nerds among us, um, historians suggest that there's something going on with these two words that may very well connect to the history of the city of Sardis, something that happened in the city's Acropolis 500 years earlier. So 500 years before they received the letter we call Revelation, Sardis was being threatened by an invading army and the people had retreated as they would do to the mountain fortress for safety. And it was working. They had plenty of supplies, plenty of food, plenty of water to outlast the armies. Um, everything was going great until around two weeks into the siege when an attacking soldier, like at the bottom of the hill, watched a defending soldier at the top of the hill accidentally drop his helmet over the edge of the city wall you had one job, right? 
and then retrieve it using a previously unknown and largely unguarded gate. So the attacking soldier rushes to his commanding officer and uh, tells him what he learned. And then later that night, the attacking army sent a soldier to secretly enter the city by that gate and open the main gates from the inside. And so the story goes that Sardis fell while the city slept. And what's even more stunning is that historians are pretty convinced it happened twice. And so obviously, if you're someone living in Sardis, um, these, were not in, these were not like high points in your city's history, right? Um, and so these were stories that you'd tell your children as a way to encourage them to be on guard at all times, to be vigilant, not to fall to the illusion that you're invincible because you're not, not by a long shot. And so to the people who had rehearsed this story and its moral over and over and over again, Jesus says to them, you need to wake up. You need to pay attention what's going on inside of your hearts. And, and I think you're, you, you do know, but you've fallen asleep. So, so I got to be honest with you. Um, as I was working on this talk this week, I couldn't help but wonder if there weren't a few of us who need to hear that two-word message this weekend. I, I mean, if you think about the last time you really got in trouble, not like on the way to church when you said something insensitive, but like, re I mean, none of us would do that, but you know what I'm saying, but like really got in trouble. Like the last time you did something that left you with a ton of regret and that wreaked havoc on your relationships. And, and my guess is that it happened during a season when you weren't guarding your heart. You weren't monitoring the erosion that was going on inside. And you started down a path that ultimately you knew you shouldn't go down, but you just were kind of asleep at the moral wheel of your life. And I'm telling you, if that's you, if you're here this morning um, and you feel like, if you're honest, you're starting to slide towards something you're going to regret later, uh, something that's going to complicate your life and the lives of the people that you love, perhaps you need to hear Jesus' encouragement to these ancient people as an encouragement for you. And just this, just this you've got to wake up, pay attention to what's going on inside your heart. Because for them and for us, it's often the first step towards reclaiming what has been lost in your faith. Okay, now let's check out what Jesus tells them to do next. So step two, it's actually really hopeful, uh, which is good at this point. <clears throat> he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So the good news is that the people in the church at Sardis weren't totally dead in their faith. They were just mostly dead in their faith. And so Jesus, as, as a coach, as an encourager, as a pastor to them, he says, listen, you need to wake up and, and you need to strengthen what is going to die if you don't give it immediate attention. So he says, listen, you need to drop whatever else you're doing and you must take care of this now. Which, of course, brings me back to us. I mean, I, I gotta ask you a question. Is there something important in your life that is about to die? Something that should be very much alive, and, and maybe it's slid to an unhealthy place very, very slowly, like almost imperceptibly, but if you were to have a conversation with yourself from a year ago or two years ago, you'd say, oh my goodness, this thing is not where it should be. Be. And, and if that's you, just a question, what are you doing about it? Um, I think of a, a few friends right now who in an honest moment would confess that they can't recall the last time they enjoyed being with their spouse. 
And they used to. It used to be a lot of fun and a lot of joy and a lot of laughter, and now it's just a lot of work, and every time they're together, it's just sort of this, okay, I guess. And, and, and if you're there this morning, it's, it just, it's a really big deal. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, at least in my life, relationships don't tend to get better when they're ignored. Anybody else? <laughs> right? They take attention, and they take intention in order to thrive. And so again, if that's you, if, if you've been experiencing a slow erosion in the quality of a, an important relationship over the last season, I need to ask you, you know, what, what steps might you take to strengthen what remains? I mean, it's not easy, but neither is the death of a significant relationship. So just what would it look like for you to take a first step towards strengthening what remains? Like first to wake up to the fact that, that there's a problem and then to go, okay, is there anything that I can do? And if there's something you can do, I just... I just play with you, you know, do it. Do whatever it takes. Enlist the help of other people who can encourage you to do what you know you need to do. So the first thing is to wake up, and the second thing is to strengthen what remains. Now, now here's what Jesus says for number three. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and hold it fast. As I was outlining this passage, I mean, I got to number three, and I thought, boy, that, that isn't what I was would necessarily expect Jesus to say, I'm not going to tell Jesus he was wrong, just so we're clear, right? But I was like, I, I mean, I guess I would have thought if you're going to reclaim spiritual health and you're going to correct the spiritual erosion in your life, I mean, then you're going to need to learn something new. Like, we missed something. So Jesus is like, aha, you need to key in on this idea that you've never heard before, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, you need to remember what you've already received and you need to hold on to it, which at least for me, raises a great question. I mean, what was it that they had received? What was it that they needed to hold on to? Well, actually, it's not that hard to imagine. Just imagine with me a group of non-Jewish people living in the city of Sardis in the first century. And they had been taught you know, before Jesus that when they wanted something, some divine intervention in their life, they needed to go to the temple to Artemis and to offer her gifts, sacrifices, to try to sort of pay her off so that she would help them you know, help their lives go well, bless them in whatever sort of fertility they were after. And that's what the temple to the fertility goddess is for. But, but then the message of Jesus comes to the city of Sardis. And they're introduced to an idea that was absolutely shocking, stunning, and mind-blowing in the ancient world. That there was a God, actually the God, who didn't require them to go to a temple and make sacrifices in order to be blessed. There was a God who had actually come to earth to be sacrificed for them. So now you weren't bringing the sacrifices. He gave you the sacrifice. It was a complete inversion. And here's the thing. Many people who were part of that Greek system of religion had embraced faith in Jesus. And in that moment, they had received grace. Something you can't earn, something you don't deserve, something you can only receive. And so to these people, Jesus says, remember what you've received. Remember that at the center of your faith is grace, and, the, and it's a grace that changes everything, or at least it's supposed to. See, I expect, based on what Jesus says here, that, that I suspect that a few of these non-Jewish followers of Jesus had maybe started to go back to the temple to Artemis. They had returned to some of the sacrifices. They had sort of stepped back into a comfortable religious system, and they had stepped away from grace. And Jesus says, you've got to remember You've got to remember what's at the center of this thing. That other stuff is distracting and pulls you away 
from mission, who you are and whose you are. Or maybe there were some Jewish people who worshiped in the massive synagogue. And, and week after week, uh, uh, they had attended services to be reminded of God's laws and like the Ten Commandments and all of it goes along with it. And, and then one day they came to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of those laws, that God had sent the Savior to the world through their people, uh, but, but that now through his death and resurrection, there was a, a new covenant or a new testament, new rules of relationship between people and God. And so many who had been a part of the Jewish synagogue system had embraced faith in Jesus and received grace or stepped out of a covenant that was centered on the laws and law keeping and stepped into the covenant of grace. Again, something you don't deserve, something you can't earn, something you just received. And it's a grace that changes everything, or at least it's supposed to. And so to these people, Jesus says, you know, you need to remember who you are, and you need to remember what you've received. It's like they already knew this, but, but they had sort of forgotten it along the way. It had sort of eroded. And I suspect that a few of them had even returned to the synagogue. They'd stepped back into a comfortable religious system and away from grace. And consequently, they had forgotten that God gives love to them so that they can give love to other people. And God gives mercy to them so they can show mercy to other people and God gives them grace so they can show grace to other people. And God gives them forgiveness so they can forgive other people. Like they knew this stuff. It was basic. But like something had gone out of focus. And so Jesus says to these people, like as a coach who loves them, you need to remember what you have received. Because here's the thing. For them and for us, spiritual health, spiritual vitality doesn't depend on learning something new. It depends on how often we're reminded of something that we've already received. It's almost like this, this vision bucket of our faith has holes in it. And so if we're not constantly pouring in reminders of who we are, it's like all of it leaks out. And that's what has happened in the church at Sardis. And I think that's what happens for a lot of us. And that's why I think the third thing Jesus tells them to do is to remember and to hold it fast. So wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, and then there's one final thing that Jesus tells them to do, and it's one powerful word, and it goes like this, repent. And if you've been with us in this series, you're like, dude, every week he tells them to repent. I know, right? Like that's like the theme of these letters. And to repent means to change. And to change is like to change your mind and then to change your ways. It starts with a change in thought, and then it transfers to a change in action, which brings me to one of the most profound things I've ever said off this stage. And so if you have a napkin, because this is one of those great things that needs to be written down on a napkin, okay? It's, it's stunning. I thought of it one day at Starbucks. So here you go. Lots of caffeine. goes like this. Ready? <clears throat> oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> to change, you have to change. In other words, you can't simultaneously change and remain the same. And Jesus knows that the Christians at Sardis are not going to get better. They're not going to like come back to life in their faith if they simply do the same thing that they've been doing. They need to make some adjustments to their lives. And for a few of us, we're like, well, I'm kind of in an honest moment discontent with my faith, but I've been doing the exact same thing for like 20 years. And I think Jesus would say to you, listen, again, don't hear anger, hear heart of a coach who loves you. Like you need to make some adjustments. 
This isn't working. And you know it isn't working, and I know it isn't working. So what changes do you need to make? And so I got to ask you, what if Jesus' words to the church at Sardis, the church that had like a reputation for being alive, but that was almost dead, what if those words were written to you and me today? And what if Jesus' encouragement to them could actually be used to launch a new season of change in your life and in my life? What if like after months or years of feeling spiritually dead, today was the day that you woke up and decided to strengthen what remains and, and to remember who you are and how you're called to live because of your faith in Jesus, like a new sort of person in the world? What if today was a day when you started to make the changes that you know you need to make in order to be who Jesus intended you to be? What if today was your day? The good news is that the church in Sardis was not hopeless. When you read these letters, um, especially if you read them all at once, it's like Jesus really is upset with these people, but here's the theme. He's upset because he sees their potential and he loves them. So the church at Sardis wasn't hopeless. None of these churches were hopeless. And here's the thing, wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever mess of life you find yourself in the midst of, you're not hopeless either. God is not done with your life or your story. I would argue that is the essence of grace, that whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever is in your past, God wants you to start fresh, to draw a line in the sand and to make the changes you know you need to make and to move forward in a way that honors him and taps into that divine design that he has placed, that divine potential that he has placed in you. That, that, that's the essence of grace. That's the essence of the gospel. And honestly, that's why God sent his one and only son into our world. All right, now if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, um, I want to begin just by saying thank you for preserving these ancient words that ring so true to us thousands of years later and halfway around the world. And I pray for friends this morning who sense something not from me, but from you. Maybe it was a call to wake up. Maybe it was a call to, to figure out what it looks like to strengthen something that's about to die, something significant in their lives. For some of us, it's a recentering on grace, the grace of Jesus and the grace that we're called to live in response to that grace. And for, the, and for a few of us who, who sense a real nudge to make some changes, um, I pray that you would give us courage to do what deep down we know we need to do, to start doing some things, to stop doing some things. And as we take a step in your direction, I pray that we would sense um, you smiling on us, that you're proud of us, and that you have a vision for our lives that is more beautiful than we can possibly 
imagine. I thank you for the New Testament, the testament of grace and the invitation to leave behind all of the old and to learn a new way to be in the midst of this world. May the light from our lives shine into our community and into our world. We bless you, we thank you, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week for part six of seven.